know. Thank you for being here at our third Black Religion, Spirituality, and Culture Conference. And our theme this year is Blackness in the Margins. So for our first um, panel, we have, um, it is Black Painter, Diaspora, and the Queering of the Black Imaginary. Um, and we asked the panelists to address the ways in which Afro-religious traditions are represented in the movie Black Panther and shape the relationship between those on the African continent and the African diaspora. We have with us um, Dr. Nikki Young, and she will be presenting first, but I'll present everyone at the same time. Um, Dr. Nikki Young is an associate professor of women's and gender studies and religion at Buckner University. Um, she received a PhD from Emory University, um, her MDiv and THM from Kendler School of Theology, and her BA from UNC Asheville. Her research focuses on the intersection of ethics, family, race, gender, and sexuality, and she is interested in the impact of queerness on moral reasoning. Her first monograph, Black Queer Ethics, Family, and Philosophical Imagination, was published in 2016 mm. by Palgrave um, Macmillan. <laughs> Professor Young, second book, um, co-authored with um, Eric Barado, and Jake Myers um, is titled In the Tongues of Mortals and Angels, A Transnational Ethics, Ethics of Black Queer Liberative Practice. Professor Young. We also have with us, with us Dr. Tony Vendemir, um, who is a senior lecturer in the Africana Studies Department at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Um, okay. Dr. Vendemir received his MS in community, econo community Economic Development from the Graduate School of Business at New Hampshire College and received his MA and PhD in Leadership and Change from Antioch University. Professor Vendemir is, is a practicing Babalawo initiated into the Yoruba Ifa Orisha belief system in Oyo, Nigeria by Dr. Wande. Amembola. Amembola. A spokesperson for the IFA, a spokesperson IFA for the world. Professor Vendemir is a co-editor of the book State of the Race: Creating Our Twenty First Century. Where do we go from here? Um, it, it was forwarded by um, Asata Shakur mm -hmm. um, in the Diaspora Press. Mm -hmm. uh, Professor Vendemir. And Dr. Kira Daniels is an assistant professor of art history. Dr. Kira Malika Daniels is, a, <laughs> is an assistant professor of art history and African and African diaspora studies with a courtesy appointment in theology. Her research interests and course topics include Africana religions, sacred arts and material culture, waste religion and, and vigil culture, and ritual and healing tradition in the Black Atlantic. Her, her first book manu manuscript, When the Spirit is Healed, is in progress, and is a comparative religion project that examine, um, examines key ritual art objects used in healing ceremonies to treat spiritual illness and mental health condition in Haiti and the Democratic Republic of Congo. 
Um, between 2009 and 2010, Professor um, Daniels served as a junior curator in the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. And following the earthquake of 2010, she worked in St. Raphael, Haiti, with La Cusole Academic and Cultural Arts Center, a grassroots organization that develops art-based pedagogy. Her work has been published in the Journal of African Religions, the Journal of Haitian Studies, and the Journal for the American Academy of Religion. She completed a BA in Africana Studies at Stanford University and her MA in Religion at Harvard University, and received a PhD in African and African American Studies at Harvard as well. Professor Malika, um, Pierre Malika Mendes. <laughs> Thank you so much for that introduction. Um, thank you for um, joining me the, to my co-panelists. I'm really excited actually to hear what they have to say more than I am about presenting what uh, my thoughts are. And thank you so much to uh, Harambe for inviting me. I This is the first year that I've actually been able to come. I was invited to the first one and had a conflict and now I'm so excited. So thank you and in particular to uh, Jared for our really wonderful conversations mm -hmm. so far. Um, so I am trained as a Christian ethicist, and I'm going to do some Christian ethics. Yes. Except the Christian ethicists don't always see me as a Christian ethicist. <laughs> so you'll hear some of those frameworks in, in my language, but know that I'm an outsider in that space, too. Um, so uh, the, I titled what I wrote today, Black Panther, Freedom, Fugitivity, and Black Queer Moral Imaginaries. Mm. You will hear the least about Black Panther, I'm sorry to say. Mm. So. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna start by telling you something that you already know. Freedom is a necessity. Mm. Not the kind of freedom that allows a man to shoot off his gun because teenagers' music is too loud. Mm or to be appointed to the Supreme Court despite a history of sexual assaults and harassment. Mm. Not that kind of freedom. I'm talking about the kind of freedom that, each of, that allows each of us the possibility of being. And, that, um, and a being that we can also use to become moral subjects and agents. Katie Cannon, womanist ethicist, reminds us in her book, Black Womanist Ethics, that at the foundation of Christian ethics is the assumption of a free being. One needs to be free in order to make moral decisions or have the capacity to make moral decisions. When we establish who a subject or a human is, we also establish who can be free. And likewise, when we ascribe freedom, we recognize and validate humanity. And within that process, we are also determining who can and can't be moral. So basically, one cannot be a moral subject or any subject at all if one is not free. Now, a notion of freedom that relies solely on rights and the capacity to offer or deny them to others actually suppresses possibilities for individual and collective performance of virtue or moral excellence. So basically, the concept of freedom that we have at work that's based on rights really pushes down our capacity to be moral agents. That's why we have to disentangle nation-state-driven empire-embedded freedom from the moral aims of people seeking emancipation from external and internal limits on their sense of self, their choices, and their livability. We need to recognize freedom as an existential condition, 
that is accessible to and potentially experienced by every human subject. So I'm saying that we need a freedom of being, that young, gifted, and black kind of freedom. Mm. We gonna be all right, freedom. <laughs> Just as I am, Lord, freedom. I am fearfully and wonderfully made freedom. Mm. Wakanda forever freedom. <laughs> or that I am that I am kind of freedom. We need a freedom that emanates from an undeniable and unapologetic knowledge about, memory of, and return to who we are. Now, this is the part that you'll know. So in a US American context, which is basically the anti-Wakanda, <laughs> such, <freedom, laughs> such freedom is suppressed through a narrative of and significations upon blackness and black people that is so ingrained in our own narratives that it's a part of the air that we breathe. The narrative is about how whiteness became understood as the most highly functioning race and thus marked by an inherent capacity for freedom. Basically, the creation of a stable labor force, I mean, you know this history, also known as a slaveocracy, produced and was produced by legal, political, religious, and scientific distinctions between those races who could be in service for life and those who could not. I'm pulling this from Liddell McWhorter. I'm just saying this so I can get to another thing that I want to say. <laughs> Racial difference supposedly pointed to an increased or decreased capacity for rational thought and the measurement of functional capacity. So, the falsified distinctions here through science, through religion, right, through politics, through law, these falsified distinctions explained or explained why different kinds of people behave differently and thus experience different material realities. And they allege that whiteness represented full human functional capacity and blackness a disabled form of human existence, right? So whiteness gets to function here in the highest capacity, blackness is some aberration of the human kind. This construction of race, and particularly the perversion and disabling of blackness and its link to freedom in concert with the normativizing of whiteness is a moral enterprise. That whole process, the racial project, is a moral enterprise, an enterprise in which whiteness and white supremacy are moral goods. This moral enterprise is the work of slavery for sure, but it's also the inevitable outcome of colonization. It's one of the inevitable outcomes of colonization. <coughs> it's colonization that underwrites slavery and the proliferation of white supremacy through signification, which is important, dehumanization, erasure of subjects that are turned into objects. What results through these processes of, of objectification is a foreclosure of possibilities that is essentially material and ontological capture. And so, efforts to salvage black subjectivity and personhood and being through the refusal of capture is a process of escape. Now, we know this in common discourse as fugitivity. Lots of people have written on fugitivity, and I'm going to say some things about it. Our refusal is an ethical project of fugitivity. Fugitivity as escape from foreclosure exists in a space between liberty and freedom, right? Liberty is the thing that they tell us that we can get, right? Sort of this American uh, neoliberal sort of concept. Freedom is this other thing that we've co-opted into thinking that it's liberty. Fugitivity as escape from foreclosure exists between this space, a space which is not simply tethered to a historical reality or a new political future, but instead 
to ongoing and material effects of slavery, or what Sadia Hartman calls the afterlife of property. Fugitivity assumes an elsewhere, as Alison Kaber describes it in Feminist Queer Crip. The elsewhere that fugitivity presupposes is not merely a different time, it is also the possibility of another situation, a place, a being, an else what, an else who, an else where. It's also a kind of space making, an alteration of what can be, this is the imaginative stuff, by recognition and then rejection of what is. It's more than fleeing from, it's a creative projection and the continual generation of freedom through a process of escape. This is what I see in Black Panther's illustration of Wakanda and all the relational, religious, and political economies therein. It's a different time of sorts. We might even think of it as outside of time, though set in a time that seems somehow recognizable to us. Perhaps it's eschaton, perhaps it's Genesis, perhaps it's both. I believe that the creative work of fugitivity and thinking about it this way is even more about generating an else who than it is about projecting an else what, where, or when. Because a significant part of what happens in and through capture, the kind of capture that I was talking about, is evisceration, or even before evisceration, preemptive exclusion of black people's selfhood. And so here I don't mean just an individual self um, in terms of a sense of self, but that's certainly part of it, but I mean the concept of self, the existence of self, the very possibility of being is persistently and systematically foreclosed. One way this foreclosure happens is through constant misnaming or signifying. This signifying happens when we are named by another who claims the sole and ultimate power of subjective citation. Citation that's not merely designation, but also literally denigration, blackening. Kugler's depiction of Wakanda and Black Panther and the royal community points to a fugitive existence, as odd as that seems. Wakanda and T'Challa have to depend on isolationism in order to maintain the safety of an uncolonized experience. In this way, it is African, but not Africa, so named and constructed by, in, and through whiteness. Yet, it is not quite untouched. It has not fully been captured, but it is related to the possibility of capture through its dangerous proximity to Africa. And so here these scare quotes are, are pointing to the way that Africa has been named, right, inscribed by entities other than itself, and how Wakanda gets to be African, but not in Africa, so named. Right? But Wakanda, while African, barely or narrowly escapes the capture of whiteness, and some might argue that its dependence on isolation suggests no escape at all. I'm not sure. I do know that Wakanda and Black Panther open up possibilities for a historical otherwise that depends on a spiritual, conceptual, and embodied investment in reality that testifies to an existence prior to and outside of colonization, capture, and naming. This is why I understand the fugitive elements within the story and depiction as a genealogical and ethical project. It's a retelling of history from a place of flight but it's also more remarkably the claiming of a history in the first place. So I recognize that it's not a real story, right? But the way that it's, the way that it's operating is in the claiming of a history. 
And so, inasmuch as it has a different story to tell of its history, its lands, its language, bodies, and cultures, Wakanda and all of its inhabitants have access to what Jelani Cobb calls redemptive counter-mythology. As testimony, if you will, that transforms the concepts of the dead, right? Boundaries between time and space. It overruns limits of science and logic. It outdoes the most dramatic family drama possible. It's like reading Genesis, or the Gospels, or Revelation. Within this retelling and claiming work, fugitivity and fugitivity within Wakanda allows us to confront the lie of African and black non-existence and draws on and even invokes a different or a new account of that existence. This confrontation is crucial for me as an ethicist because it calls attention to the fallacy of signification, of other naming, epithets. It also deliberately uncovers the relational component of subject formation, right? So how things come into being at all. It points, it points directly to the reality that whiteness is existence, right? As I was describing it as a moral good before, that whiteness is existence is actually only a result of having falsified the existence of and then named a certain kind of blackness. And inasmuch as that process of making seems difficult to undo, it's undoing is what makes room for the unmaking and then remaking of subjectivity and selfhood for black folks. Now when I'm saying selfhood, I'm sure you can hear me sliding into the possible sea of narcissism. That's not what I'm doing, right? I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to resurrect the idea that we have been denied selfhood in the very first place. So it is not the um, lifting and appreciation of selfhood as opposed to the community. It is an establishment of humanity, of subjectivity in the first place. Blackness and black people in Wakanda live lives, I mean, sorry, blackness and black people in Wakanda live into the sacred work of generating different ontological understandings than the ones that would be signified upon them by the overlapping powers of capitalist white cis heteropatriarchy. Such a living out is ethical labor towards freedom, the freedoms that I was talking about before. The freedom that seems to articulate itself in these folks' lives is one of being, and I encountered it as part of my uh, work in the, in the Black Queer Ethics book that I wrote. In that text, when I argued that black queers are moral subjects with moral agency, I was suggesting that we, they, create the possibility of being virtuous or having virtue through a process called creative resistance. The resistance, while often manifested socially and politically, produces ontological realities of freedom in individuals and communities. I was drawing on the legacy of black feminist and womanist praxis, along with queer discourse, to be able to see and interpret my observations and interviews with black queers who were themselves just trying to make a way in a context that denies a way. When black queers imagine new relational possibilities through the practice of recognizing and resisting oppressive ones, there is a confrontation with present reality. Imaginative work uses the simultaneity embedded in queerness to doubly focus on fostering alterity, right, this other reality, to what is tangible and present, as well as generating newness based on possibilities. And moral imagination, which is what I'm interested in, doesn't leave our realities and experiences and motivation in some forgotten past or in some unknown past. It honestly and intentionally recognizes how those elements can contribute to new worlds, the new worlds that we see, for example, in Wakanda. 
So when I write about the survival and livability and futures of blackness and queerness, I participate in these construction of worlds. I'm basically Kugler without the money. <laughs> I'll take a check, thank you. <laughs> these new worlds have social relations that are built on notions of subjectivity that we don't actually have, at least not in the American context, or which, within which we don't quite operate. When I talk about the revolutionary practice and quality of black love, I'm making a statement about how the reality of black love stands in opposition to the moral discourses that we've used to describe black lives. And so was Kugler. And so between a lack of a future due to the expendability of labor, right, in the slaveocracy that I was talking about, and the fungibility of black lives in as much as we use and exploit them in an American context, it makes sense in our space to think that black lives do not matter. But in Wakanda, that, the articulation of the exact opposite operates as science fiction and also sacred text. It operates as a projection of possibility. Wakanda and Black Panther are not science fiction because they are comic book stories. They're science fiction because they articulate a substance of things hoped for. Now this is also, let me just, as an aside, I'm rounding out towards the end. This is also really sort of soft reading of Wakanda. I do have a, a, a Black Panther, I do have a lot of critiques of the film, but there are some elements in there that feel like, I mean, I would move there, really. I mean, <laughs> if like Delta had a flight, I mean, I'd be able to. So again, this kind of spe uh, speculative fiction is ethical action. When situated against volumes and histories of fictional reinstantiations of histories that denigrate, consume, exploit, and eviscerate blackness, Black Panther looks like the black and black queer version of it is written but I say refrains. Right? One exciting bit is the shift from what has been written to what is newly iterated. But what's also exciting is the shift from it to I, the injection of subjectivity, moral subjectivity, and capacity for change. In my work, I talk about this as black queer ethics. And I love that it has the audacity and rage to do this flip, uh, script flipping kind of work. To make us recognize ourselves as sources of knowledge and then to challenge our use of normative frameworks, language, categories, religions within those descriptions of knowledge. This is what allows black queer ethics to be a mode of destabilizing the structures of domination that build upon anti-blackness, the suppression of sexuality and self-knowledge and self-love, as well as the collective experiences and expressions of joy. In this way, black queer ethics is a process of decolonizing the imagination and imaginative processes. Writer um, and activist Walida Marisha reminds us about this in Octavia's Brood where she writes, once the imagination is unshackled, liberation is limitless. Mm -hmm. Our ancestors dreamed us up and then bent reality to create us. Mm -hmm. The black queer ethics that makes freedom possible is about bending reality to freedom and justice. But it's also about shattering what we already know as reality, breaking apart epistemological framing that shackles us in neoliberal bondage. This is the type of breaking that Wakanda introduced in its creation of a world. It's about snatching back what looks like the collective good to make room for all that is not yet, to make room for the same kind of substance of things hoped for. So then, watching the film and thinking about ethics leaves me with a couple of questions that I'll leave to you. Whose ancestors will we be?
What dead will we talk to? Who are we writing into our future? What kind of souls, bodies, and lives are we making possible? And to whom, among the dead, will our children speak? Thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So I also want to thank the committee for inviting me. Um, I have to say that the past week has been a, a, a rough one, but um, I can say that it has in some ways tied into some of my, my thinking. So uh, I'm going to sort of do a kind of alphabet soup thing um, <laughs> and uh, try to pull some pieces uh, um, uh, together, um, I've been thinking about um, the uh, the theme, and I've been thinking about the question um, that we're asked to uh, to answer. And so, um, I'm coming from perspective of someone who is a Yoruba practitioner. I'm coming from someone from the perspective of someone who has uh, been engaged in the Black Liberation Movement for over 40 years. Um, and so, I'm trying to connect. Uh, those uh, two um, things together and uh, to sort of make sense of our discussion. Well, first of all, you know, I was trying to figure out, you know, what was meant by uh, the whole idea of um, Black Panther, diaspora, and the querying of Black imaginary. And so I was you know, trying to figure out where that question was coming from and how we're defining um, you know, things. So one of the things, you know, and I, you know, I, I, I watched the Black Panther movie a couple of times. In fact, I fell asleep trying to watch it again last night. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I read a, a number of the um, articles and reviews and responses to it. And essentially, I thought it was um, a pretty powerful film. Um, I have issues with it, yeah. um, but I thought that in terms of trying to deal with uh, black imagination, that it's important for uh, particularly black people and everyone to see uh, the imagery of black people in a different light, mm -hmm. in a different uh, situation. Um, and so, uh, but it's, it's, it's also important to be careful as to how that image is portrayed and who portray it. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you have black actors, the fact that you have you know, black directors and, and black costume designers and so forth, is that you're still operating within a, uh, a, a, a white corporate framework, you know, this mm -hmm. being funneled through Hollywood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we have to understand that Hollywood is designed to appeal to the majority of the U.S. population as well as the broader world global population. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of the particular um, ideas um, are ideas uh, about culture, about religion, about spirituality, um, are ideas uh, that sometimes seem to be foreign uh, to uh, Black people as well, uh, who have some notions, but in terms of going into the deeper aspect of it, 
is that their orientation has been best based on what we experience in living in a culture imperialist world. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, you know the. Um, you know, idea of how do we begin to see and critique that in relationship to the diaspora, in relationship to black liberation, right? So, but I think that when we look at querying, it's like we're looking at how do we begin to develop uh, a different way of how we would look at the future and, and what we want out of the future. And essentially, that is a process of self-determination for people who have been marginalized for so long. Um, but it's also a process of decol decolonization, of decolonizing one's mind, one's perspective. Um, and so, and you have to excuse me, because if I switch vernaculars, uh, you know, I'm from Harlem, so they say that, you know, you can take a person out of Harlem, but you can't take Harlem out of a person, right? So. Um, is that when you uh, begin to look at what is it that we, how do we want to imagine, you know, um, our future? And from, uh, from a black liberation perspective, from a spiritual perspective, and coming from a Europe perspective, is that uh, when people see or deal with the question of Europe, and even black people and even people in Africa, is that uh, they don't necessarily deal with the philosophical and ethical aspects of that practice. You understand? Um, and so it becomes very difficult because they're looking around more of the iconography and you know, more of the dance and the music and the, you know, all these other things that are, that are very valid, right? But in terms of from a holistic perspective, what is the core principles of these belief systems and how do they relate you know, to what's going on? So you know, when I look at, um, you know, when I watch uh, the uh, Black Panther movie, is that I saw more of a kind of South African, uh, you know, cultural perspective, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and a lot of the um, set of rituals and, and so forth, similar was, was based on some of that thinking, but it's also there's some consistency in terms of, you know, African belief systems, you know, especially as relates to the ancestors, especially as relates to values. And so, you know, there's a whole idea of, uh, Wakanda trying to um, sort of create uh, this space sort of kind of in isolation, um, but there's a debate as to uh, can it, it should do more, mm -hmm. right? That it should begin to go out and help others. Mm -hmm. And interesting enough, because I had raised some questions, interesting enough at the beginning of the scene, you know, uh, when they visit LA, and you see these guys, you know, of mapping out, are they gonna take off a place that got guns on the table and everything? And I'm, I was trying to figure, you know, figure this out. And so the, the, the contradiction was, you know, you violated the code, you know, uh, by, uh, you know, taking vibranium and giving it to someone and so forth. But my whole point was, why was he here and what was he trying to do? You know, uh, and did he in fact represent a different belief is that we need to help uh, the outside world to deal with the impact that imperialism have on them. You, you understand? Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't think they really got into that. Uh, you know, um, a lot. You had to imagine, right, what was going on. 
right? It, le- le- it, it, it left a lot to one's imagination as to what the particulars are, you know, as it relates to that. But the deeper discussion uh, was we need, to, we need to do more, right? We need to take this outside, right? And it's interesting because, you know, you cannot live in isolation in the imperialist world. Yes. We're understanding that with Cuba. We're understanding that with Venezuela. Right. We're understanding that with other progressive societies mm-hmm. who, in fact, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 the propaganda, U.S. propaganda machine, you know, begins to show them as, you know, the bad people and the U.S. as the, the good people. And, you know, Malcolm X was clear on this when he said, you know, if you're not careful, you know, the newspapers will have you believing that the victim is the criminal and the criminal is the victim. And because we don't have enough information as to how people deal with their lives, we assume that they are bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we begin to create, you know, this, which um, uh, Dr. D'Angelo, who wrote White Fragility, we begin to deal with this, you know, good, bad binder, you know, which we witnessed, you know, just the other day when the congressman from North Carolina, you know, began to talk about, you know, uh, how he could not be a racist because his nephews, you know, <laughs> uh, nieces were black. You know, and that he was a good friend of, uh, you know, the good uh, uh, chairman who was uh, from, from, uh, from Maryland and so forth uh, and everything. You know, so this denial, you know, and so forth. So, you know, we have to be, understand how those narratives are, are woven and how people begin to internalize that, that process. But the idea of looking deeper in terms of traditional African belief systems we have to go back to what are the, the, those principles of that belief system. So particularly in the Yoruba belief system, first of all, the Yorubas believe that conflict is the order of the day. Mm. Right? Mm. Um, and so the idea of having the, the, the Yoruba Ifar Arisha belief system is how to navigate that conflict in order to be able to be successful hmm. in what it is that you do. Hmm. However, there's a process and there's two processes. Uh, one is around divination, to inquire using the oracle to find out, you know, what is it that that person could be possibly going through, right? And then the other part is that once you find that and you come up with a solution, is to do, uh, to, is to make sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Now, what is not dealt with with many practitioners is that after you do your sacrifice, as they call it, bow then there's something called reflection. You have to, because see, that's where you begin to deal with the deeper philosophical and ethical meanings so that you can internalize and practice something different. There's a transformative aspect you know, to the practice that a lot of people aren't dealing with because of, it's, it's becoming a, a more, uh, you're dealing with more kind of commodification with the practice. You know, it's, not, it's going about dollars and cents and not really deep spiritual development. Right. This is a contradiction in Africa and the diaspora, right? Mm-hmm. You see, because when you begin to deal with the text, it's a whole nother aspect of it. In fact, in one of the Odus in o, uh, uh, Osai Meiji, it says that, you know, the uh, the Ephi priests of earth performed divination for earth, uh, and they did it because it was to prevent them uh, uh, from, uh, from uh, disaster or, or death you know, and that they shouldn't be going after materialism, but they should be going to protect themselves. You understand? So that's, you know, so in all of the, 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 the Odus, that there is a sort of ethical, uh, you know, underpinning that one should begin to follow, right? You know, in terms of one's behavior. 
in terms of humility, in terms of you know, uh, being uh, uh, truthful and being generous and so forth. And so in Wakanda, the whole idea of um, uh, the king going back uh, to the ancestor realm and talking to his father says, you lied. Hmm. You lied. Right? And so, you know, it's like, and then the tension that he's, uh, he has between the woman that he's, he loves, you know, they, you know, it was this big kiss and then everybody went wild in the movies, you know, you know, the show Black Love is like, whoa, which is a revolutionary act, right? right. You know, yes. and so, yes. you know, uh, but the idea of, she was saying, look, man, I, I got to get out here because we got to, you know, we got to help the people, man, and like, you, you could do more. And so he realized that, well, let's do more. Now, the part is going to the UN and dealing with the UN. That's a whole nother story. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole nother story. Right? You see what I'm saying? So I don't know about part two, but it's like, you know, <laughs> right? But, but the point is, is that how are we using these values to begin to imagine a new society? So when I got up, I said that it's been a rough week. And, you know, I, uh, I had a, uh, someone who's been calling me. For the past three years, I've been in contact with a young man who's been uh, locked up in prison uh, for murder. And uh, he um, was a young man at the time, and he, you know, murdered someone. And so I get a call, actually an email. Where I was like, you know, first of all, I'm suspicious, like email from prison. What's up with that, right? <laughs> you know. And then he's telling me that he was interested in Yoruba practice and so forth. And then, you know, we, we were able to write. He, we, he, you know, he called. We talked, and I showed that he's been reading. He was studying. So this is very interesting, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so then he moved to Massachusetts. And so it's through him and others I got connected to uh, the Restorative Justice Network, right? And so uh, we were communicating. I think I was in Cuba at the time, and you know, he put me in touch with someone, and they wanted me to go to another prison to talk to a group of prisoners, but I thought I was going to visit with him as well. And so I said, okay, I would do it, right? So I thought this would be a couple of hours, you know, like I'll come in the afternoon, I'll do it. And so the next thing I know, they said we have to be at the prison at 8.15, and then the people I was going with said, well, we got to meet at 6 o'clock. And then I knew I was getting up at 4 o'clock. I said, yo, well, wait a minute. <laughs> I only do that when I'm traveling, right? <laughs> and then I was there until about like 5 o'clock. This is sad. It's like my whole, you know, uh, day was gone. But this was so, so powerful, right? Because it was the inmates themselves that was using this process of trying to address restorative justice along with the survivors, women, whose children, whose families were murdered by the same people. Mm -hmm. Wow. And I'm telling you, I was in tears. Mm -hmm. I was in tears that whole day, because I sat next to those women, and I sat next to the men who were talking about the murders that they committed. Mm -hmm. But it was, you know why it was powerful? Because they were trying to deal with the question of uh, being remorse, you know, remorseful and, forgive, and forgiving but also recognizing that because you want to be, you know, you want to, uh, uh, you you looking for forgiveness. You want to admit, you want to grow out of that what you've been through. Don't mean that someone's going to say, yeah, yeah, we 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 forgive. That's a very difficult position. But the idea that they were dealing with, an idea that the victims, the survivors, excuse me, was going there and was being forgiven was very very powerful. That is the work that has to be that has to happen in terms of if if we're going to change anything, if we're going to have a, a, a uh, imagination as to how we move forward, we have to deal with th those who are the most vulnerable. Mm. And that is the victims and that are those who have committed crimes. Mm. 
right? When we could transform that, then we can talk about having a different imagination about how we see uh, society. Because, you know, one of the interesting things about the, um, the hearing uh, around Michael Cohen was that, you know, in terms of him, you know, admitting, you know, what he's done, and you can see these other folks, was they, they, they wanted to blame him, but not blame the institutions, not blame the structure, you know, that allow him to do what he did. Not even looking at, you know, so it was, it was horrible. So you can see that, that nothing was going to change based on what they're talking about. But until we begin to look at our own weaknesses and our own contradictions, right, and begin to work with people with a sense of values and ethics and our humanity, then we can move forward, right? And so what's been even more disturbing that, you know, I can see my community in pain today because of this young woman, uh, Jessie Carrera, who was murdered this week in Boston. They found her, you know, in the back of a car. And then I hear this debate of, well, so-and-so is to blame and this and this and that. And, you know, the first thing I did this morning was call some people and say, we need a healing circle, mm. right? Because then we are going back to imagine, you know, like, how do we deal with it? We need to punish so-and-so. We need to do this. That, that is not going to bring that young lady back. Mm. It's not going to bring her back, mm. right? And so you could, you could hang him. You can cut his head off and, you know, whoever they got, and you can watch it, but, you know, you're still going to hurt. Yeah. And I'll end with this. One of the things I learned... Uh, from these women survivors was that they say it over and over. They said, hurt people, hurt people, heal people, heal people, right? Mm. And so the question is, how do we heal hurt people, mm. right? And so, mm. you know, for me, and being in there, and, and what really triggered things for me is that as a, as a young man uh, who witnessed the loss of my 12-year-old brother, mm. is that it's been 50 years, and that pain is still, it lingers around, it never goes away. Mm -hmm. But it's a question of what tools do you use mm -hmm. so that you don't get caught up in the system, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, that, 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 that is looking at uh, a, a corrupt way of what justice is mm -hmm. versus looking at, you know, a way of how do we begin to create justice and restorative justice in our society. That should be part of our imagination. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. How are you all doing? Good afternoon. Uh, it's wonderful to be here, and I just have to say I am so honored to be joining this panel. Thank you so much to the organizers, Fatima, Jared, and special thanks to Christina uh, for the warm invitation to be a part of this conversation. I feel like uh, the work that we're doing really uh, feels quite aligned on this panel, and I'm really grateful for my uh, predecessors, if you will. Um, today, I am presenting on portraits of the divine black feminine in Haitian voodoo and Black Panther. Um, I'm going to be in a more conversational mode to dialogue with you a little bit about how I have incorporated some elements of teaching about divine black feminine and Black Panther in my classes on introduction to African and African diaspora studies. Um, I'm going to speak about, I'm going to introduce you all to four different spirits known as Haitian loi, Haitian spirits. Uh, from left to right, you have La Sirene, the Mermaid Queen, Eosjuli Danto, the Warrior Mother, 
Belgelie Freda, the lover and businesswoman, and Gwenrigitte, queen of the dead. And these have corollary spirits in other African and African diaspora traditions, certainly the Yoruba-derived traditions. Um, I'll be speaking very briefly about sort of the divine feminine, as I call them, from Black Panther. From left to right, we have Princess Shuri, uh, Nakia, Okoye, and Queen Ramonda. Um, and I think it's really important to dialogue about these two sets of portraits of black femininity and black womanhood uh, because it allows us to sort of explode our understandings of what black women look like and what our limitations are, to think more expansively about what does our imaginary of black womanhood look like if we begin to conceive of what a black divin divine feminine can be, what are the possibilities that that raises for us as people. So I want to begin uh, by introducing you a little bit to Haitian Vodou. It's a tradition based on healing, uh, based on ancestral reverence, uh, appreciation of a highest God and many uh, intermediary spirits. Um, and I think one of the things that's important to note is that Haiti, like many other countries, probably arguably all countries, uh, you know, exists in a patriarchal society. It is still very much a misogynist nation. Uh, but within that nation, I think Haitian Vodou really offers women a great deal of opportunity for leadership. Um, there's a great deal of empowerment that women feel when they are part of these religious communities. Um, and there's also a certain understanding about uh, a balance of power shared between men and women in Haitian Vodou communities. Um, I argue that Haitian spirits uh, who are goddesses really allow us to expand beyond the understandings of Mary as just a virginal mother um, uh, who is representative of matronly love, fidelity, and submission, but rather these spirits embody notions of love, work, anger, power, sensuality, sexuality, frustration, and need. Right? I think this is something that's really interesting for us to think about is what does it look like when spirits need us as humans to call their name, to invoke them, to remember their legacy so that they too can help us with our paths forward. Uh, Karen McCarthy Brown, who's written a seminal text on uh, Haitian Vodou, uh, <coughs> states that the female law, especially the Elzuli spirits, and these are two of them here, Elzuli Frida and Elzuli Dantor, um, serve as, quote, mirrors and maps to understand Haitian women's social, cultural, and religious realities in Haiti and the diasporas. And I really love this term, mirrors and maps, because it encourages us to think about these spirits as reflections of women in Haitian society, as well as routes for women in society. Um, they are known and understood to have fraught tension between the two of them, and I'll get into that in a minute. Uh, but in essence, there is the sense that there is an ongoing rivalry that can never be resolved. And part of the reason that it can never be resolved is because each one needs the other. They cannot exist, in fact, without the other. And in many ways, this reveals some of the tensions that black women, Haitian women, experience within themselves. And in a lot of ways, the Eldridi spirits, along with other divine feminine spirits of Haitian Vodou, remind us of the diversity of these divine female energies that live within all of us. So reminding us that, in fact, you may be made to a particular spirit, you may be chosen by a particular spirit, you may walk with a particular spirit, but in fact, you carry all of the divine within you. And it's that plurality, it's that diversity that's important to recall. So I'm gonna introduce you first to La Sirene, the mermaid queen. She's associated with La Virgen de la Caridad del Cobre. 
Uh, she's considered to have a sister, some people say a lover, known as La Baleine, um, who is a, a, a figure also associated with the sea. And she is also known to be able to take people underwater to initiate them. So at times, uh, people will come forward and say, I was initiated, but en bas de l'eau, underneath the water. Um, and this would be a reference often to spirits such as La Sirene, who have imparted mystic wisdom. All of a sudden, they know all of the salutations, they know all of the songs, they know things that have been really guarded, protected knowledge that you would only learn in initiatory rites with a temple, uh, and they present themselves. So she's someone associated with uh, the mystic knowledge and the depths of the sea. She is married to Abwe, because black women can have love too, even in the spirit world. Um, so I've created... Um, very short reflections uh, based on my research uh, with devotees in the community. I myself am also closely and intimately tied to the Haitian Vodou tradition, um, but also as creative interpretations. So, Queen of the Seas, La Sirene inhabits salt water and fresh waters alike, and her husband is Agui, the royal ship captain and protector of underwater treasures. La Sirene comes blissfully, her face glowing with a shine from the sea and the sun. And when asked, she performs divination with deserted shells at the bottom of the sea. She dances as she embraces her children who live above water, folding them into her human arms as she swishes her tail gracefully, longingly. La Sirene uses coral to comb her hair and fashions bits of tortoise shell as her pocket mirrors. She speaks an echolocation to send messages to her sister lover, La Baleine, never seen without her prophetic mirror, she reveals how acts of reflection and recollection allow us to make ourselves anew. Mm. Next is Yeosri Freda. She is associated with Our Lady of Sorrows, Mater Dolorosa. Um, she is considered to be a spirit of love, also of jealousy, of fortune, of wealth, and abundance. Um, she's considered also to be a bit of a tragic figure. When often she comes in ceremony, she may weep, and it's understood that her imaginary of the world, of being perfect, and her expectations of humans is so great that inevitably she will be disappointed by humans' foils. And so often she comes in ceremony and weeps. Elzeli Freda, Loi of Loving Affection and Jealousy, spirit of fortune and chance, is a woman with many lovers, but no master besides herself. A Renaissance woman, she travels widely and speaks more than one language of love. She appreciates the finer things in life, including opera, aged wine, luxurious perfumes, and coral-colored lipstick. Few people know that Freda trained as a professional dancer, and while she can tango, waltz, and kizomba better than most, no one but her lovers know how much she enjoys a good bal compas pressed tightly against a new partner or a familiar love as they whisper dreams of fame and fortune in her ear. A shrewd businesswoman, Frida doesn't trust men with her money, but rather has started her own meh, the goddess's informal loan club that rotates recipients <laughs> for savings. From time to time, she secretly steals away to her grandmother in the countryside to seek advice for her next ventures. She's known to persuade lovers and business partners alike with a golden tongue and laughter that rings like bells ever ready for champagne toasts in honor of her successes and those of devotees. Next, we have Elzuli Danton, a warrior mother, considered to be the patroness of lesbians and also of queer men, um, considered to be somebody who takes care not only of her child and those of her sister, but also of all the children of the world. Elzuli Danton brews strong herbal tea and takes her coffee black. Her house is deep in the woods and it is here amidst the roots and the leaves that she performs ritual work. 
In the evenings, you may find her seated in a rocking chair on the porch, a head scarf crowning her head, a pipe in one hand, and a story emerging like wisps of smoke from between her lips. It is said that Nato disguised herself as a man to enter battle during the Haitian Revolutionary War. And when her identity was discovered, the outraged soldiers sliced out her tongue for fear that she would betray them to the other side. Elzuli Nato bears these marks as two scars on her cheeks. And when she comes in ceremony, she does not speak, but rather clicks a silenced phantom tongue. Natal is Freda's dark-skinned sister, who cares for her own children, as well as the children of her light-skinned sister. She engages in intimate relationships with men and women alike, as patroness of women-loving women. A fearless warrior and fiercely protective mother, a lover and justice seeker, Danto's love knows no bounds, and she embodies multifaceted aspects of Haitian womanhood, weaving together experiences of sexuality and motherhood. And the last spirit I'm going to introduce you to is Glenn Brigitte, queen of the dead, associated with the Irish Catholic saint, Saint Brigitte. Um, she's considered to be a prophetess, uh, somebody who works closely with the dead as the guardian of them, um, and who has a family of very rambunctious other spirits. Glenn queen of the Gede Nation, sleeps with the Book of the Dead under her pillow and the Book of Life as the journal on her nightstand. Mm -hmm. Married to the boisterous spirit Bamo Samzi, she is reserved but equally witty. She is known as a gifted clairvoyant <coughs> with a mischievous sense of humor, as Gede's children are always playing pranks. She weaves baskets for offerings to the dead and dresses royally in hues of purple, mauve, and maroon, with flowing robes kissing her bejeweled feet and textured fabrics crowning her head. The reason that I introduce my students to these particular divine spirits in a conversation about the harmful representations of black women's stereotypes in the United States is because I think it, it provides a really helpful and stark contrast. So uh, I will note that some of the images that come about are quite controversial. Uh, we're more familiar with these types of representations of black womanhood in the media and in our everyday lives, the mammy associated with the woman who was brought from the fields to feed not only her own children, but the children of the master uh, who would not be suckled by the mother. Unfortunately, this carries on in Aunt Jemima, do not buy Aunt Jemima, um, because she began as this mammy figure and has been dolled up and a sort of, you know, cute do, but this is her origin, right? Her origin is as the mammy. We're also perhaps familiar with the notion of the Jezebel, the sexually lascivious woman who is always tempting men and bringing them to their downfall, especially the case with black men who are trying to stay a straight road and white men who might be really able to achieve power if they were not caught up with these lascivious women. We're familiar, of course, with the angry black woman, Sapphire, as a figure who is a threat to uh, men, again, trying to climb in the hierarchy, but also just a, a sort of disturbance and a nuisance in the community and society. One who causes trouble, who sounds the alarm at times and creates conflict wherever she passes. And finally, the welfare queen, 
uh, <coughs> whom we're very familiar with in this day and age in our political specter, uh, the one who is always trying to extort from the state, uh, take advantage of a system of you know, beneficiary goods, always at the expense of others. And so I like to place these four really horrific stereotypes in conversation with the Haitian Loa and whom we might identify as the sort of divine feminine Africana caste um, because I think it provides us really helpful and fruitful discussions of what the experiences and what the variety and diversity of black womanhood can look like. So I'm going to show you a very short clip, it's just one minute long, of some of these figures from Black Panther. Oh, with the sound on, I'm gonna do that. <laughs> she embodies, I think, a little sister should be in a movie like this, and she brings an aspect of T'Challa out that I love being able to show. You have the wisdom of the Queen Mother, and the fact that she's on the council, there's a feeling that she doesn't necessarily agree with my decision to go get caught at this particular time. So there's a respect factor there, but then, you know, my own man. With Nakia, I love the fact that she has her own mind. And I have to deal with that as a man. Okoye allows you to have another dimension in how you operate. Because she's so good at what she does that she's protecting me on another level. She's like another suit. It's a very rich experience in terms of the characters to have these characters that reflect that, you know, have Cherie, this young, spunky, tech-savvy woman leading what kind of technological charge, that's powerful. It's really what the image for young girls to get. So let's stop there. Subscribe. <laughs> Capital, capitalism yeah. <laughs> at its best. Yeah. Um, so as I'm winding down, um, I hope that it's um, helpful to think about the different ways that we can use some of these teaching tools in the classroom. Like my fellow panelists, I also have quite a lot of problems with Black Panther, uh, neck rings and lip plates. I think sometimes African-Americans, we have to be held accountable for our own imaginaries of what African civilization looks like. Um, but I think in the example provided by Dr. Vandermeer as well, and thinking about uh, the ancestral plane, this is a really wonderful way to introduce students to the importance of ancestral reverence, right? Ancestors are not gods, right? They did not create the universe, but how can you not honor those who came before you? Um, and to quote my, my fellow panelist, Dr. Young, in mentioning this notion of a sort of liberatory framework in this, I think you called it the redemptive counter mythology. I think what's really profound about these African indigenous traditions is that you are encountering a religious tradition that existed before colonialism, right? And so what does it mean to encounter a set of diverse female spirits who embody these powerful notions of warriors as the Dora Milaje perform acts of service for the country, for the nation of Wakanda uh, as Amazonian warriors? Um, this is uh, uh, 
text that's created by filmmakers of a, tech, of a film called Ancestral Voices, Dalian Adolfo and Veronica Spence. Uh, they've created a film, two films actually, on African and African diaspora religions, which are really great teaching tools. Um, and they've created some uh, text to guide conversations through a discussion of the female presence, uh, particularly as a divine feminine presence in the film. Uh, we can even think about the Oscars this week as the divine feminine, right? Mm -hmm. So we have Hannah Beachler awarded for production design and Ruth E. Carter awarded for costume design. These are really important conversations to have with students. Um, I'll note that Ogunaike actually has written, uh, Yodeji Ogunaike, who uh, joined me today this morning in the earlier speech, has written a fantastic article called Managing Multiple Masculinities. I think that in the same way we're thinking about the complexities of what black womanhood looks like to complicate our understandings of these horrible stereotypes, we ought to do the same thing for understanding the nuances of black manhood. And I'll end by noting that one of the things that's most integral to understanding the importance of all of these spirits is the notion of balance. This is a veve, a sacred symbol that's drawn on the earth to invoke spirits in ceremony. This is called milokan. It is the integration of spirits. So you have Ogu, the warrior, uh, alongside Zaka, the farmer, alongside Eljubi Freda, whom we were introduced to earlier, right? And so the understanding is that it is only by bringing the universe into harmony with the balance of these divine feminine and divine masculine energies that we will truly be able to call ourselves empowered and liberated. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, everyone. And we now have, let's see, just about 20 minutes for questions. Yeah. Thank you so much for the wonderful talk. Um, I'd actually, if you don't mind, I'd love to hear a few of your criticisms of uh, Black Panther, if, <laughs> if you got a minute, um, especially as it pertains to the portrayal of specifically Black Americans uh, in the movie and how we think about the Black imaginary that might not include, Think about the difference, like you were saying, between African spiritual, African and African American, and the difference between being, I don't know, maybe uh, having like a, a royal lineage versus being slave descendant in the states, and how maybe the movie might have troubled that. If mm -hmm. that makes any sense. Thank mm -hmm. you. Please. Well, <laughs> sorry. We all have so much yeah, to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that um, sort of the, I think the, 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 the main thing is uh, how, how do we look at, um, you raised it, how we look at freedom. Mm. And oh, where does that leadership uh, come from, and you know, part of you know, I mean, like when you look at the question was, is that how how did we get here, right? How did black people get to America to the diasporas? And apparently, there's been some contradictions in African society, right, for that to happen. And so, what is it that we need to change? And how do we, um, you know, look at um, changing it from those who are at the bottom of that, that, uh, that level of, uh, of oppression. And so if you deal with this more hierarchical you know, understanding of how you want to get your freedom, 
then we're going to be waiting, you know, for people to come and free free us, mm. as opposed to us, you know, having or having an agency to free ourselves, mm. you know, around that. So Hollywood is not going to do that. I mean, the, I, I, mean I thought the Black Panther film was wonderful in many ways, but it's still another imperialist pro product. Mm. Yes, interesting. You, you, you understand, mm. you know, and so, um, you, so you are mixing these symbols. It's 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 also about co-optation, mm -hmm. right? So you you know that that the whole idea of even Afrofuturism is is you know this is good on one hand, but it's also a way of escaping because see we got to fight, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we got to struggle, mm -hmm. and I don't care if you you know the provost at Harvard University, I don't care if you're the president of the United States, right? Is that black people have to struggle in order to be free, right? Otherwise, you fall into a different mindset, a different model. So, you know, Wakanda, beautiful, right? I got it, <laughs> right? Uh, but, but, you know, we got to understand, right, is that, you know, our freedom is just not based on our freedom. Our freedom is based on everybody else's right. freedom, mm -hmm. right, right, right. right? So our freedom is based on the Afro-Venezuelans, uh, mm. the Afro-Cubans, mm. and all Venezuelans, all Cubans, and the Afro-Colombians, mm. you know, and all those folks who've been part of the diaspora, right? You know, and so we have to understand that, yes, I'm fighting for my freedom, but as long as somebody else is not free, I am not free. On, as long as there's a hierarchy, you know, I'm still not free. You know, we could do it all the tokenism, all the symbols, and have all the black Congress people, black, it don't mean anything if we still have the level of poverty, you know, the, 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 the disaster that happens in these urban cities, we are not free. And so Hollywood is not going to show that. That's something that we have to do, and that's something we're not going to make a lot of money in doing. Well, I feel like... Um, now that Dr. Vandermeer has invoked Audrey Lord, we can leave. But, <laughs> so I don't know what else there is to say, but I'm going to say something anyway. Um, I really am glad that you introduced this critique, you know, question because uh, as an ethicist, there are two big things. Now there are lots of things, but there are two big things. The first thing is absolutely our treatment of Killmonger, right? So, and does he have another name? Is I it? think that's kind of That's it. what the name is? Okay. Because I didn't read the comic book. Don't tell anybody. But um, so we talked, you all talked about this a little bit this morning, but basically sort of what the isolationism creates um, is a notion of mar re-marginalization. So what he experiences is a, is a kind of othering that allows a first set of being, a family, to remain intact. So as a person who talks <coughs> about family, I am first of all, frustrated with the idea of um, the royal family being able to remain intact by eviscerating one element of itself, right? And then wondering why that self isn't upset. So instead of saying, you know what, let's wrap our arms around, let's have a healing circle, let's do something like that, what they say is, oh my gosh, we gotta destroy. Now, it's not like Hillmonger didn't come in there talking about, hey, auntie, and let me take over your land, right? I'm not saying that he did the right thing, but I am saying that the response to, to what is obviously a significant family trauma is more sort of mm -hmm. um, war-like approaches. Hurt people hurt. Right? Absolutely, and that approach could have been totally different in a, in a black imaginary, in a queer black imaginary that um, sort of tries to repair the strictures of family. The other significant thing, and I was really surprised at this at the end, that if, if, if Wakanda as a context projects, projects simultaneously a past and the possibility for a future, 
that the only future that we could imagine was a capitalist future was like, yeah. Yeah. wait, what? So the thing that would bring Wakanda into the world right. was its collusion with right. an imperial project? Right. I, I was like, Ooh. it was like eating a mango and it being rotten in the middle. Like, mm. I, I, eating a mango. I don't know. I, I heard we're having Jamaican food, so I'm just like, really. But... <laughs> But that idea was so disappointing as a as as an imaginary and as a visual. I mean, because the the big thing at the end, what is it like a a, a plane or or a spaceship or something that's in the middle of Oakland? So the the Too image that we see is also disappointing given the beautiful images of tradition <coughs> and culture and innovation that we see in Wakanda. Also, I wish they wouldn't have gone back to Oakland. So it cannot be. I don't know why this is about to make me cry, but it cannot be that the future is to redo the transatlantic move. It cannot be that we return to one of the spots, right? That, that we literally trace the same steps to go back to new places as sites of colonization to bring back money. Like, it seems like the cruelest forms of retelling a story that we can imagine. So those are some big things. Now there's also some other stuff around like the uh, a very flatly imagined concept of gender. So I I, I love that the um, what's the warrior Dora uh, Milaje. the Dora Milaje. I love how powerful and physical and whatever, but th that we only talk about that as like an expression of a sort of masculinity that's adapted into femininity seems just like a a really sort of flat and simple way of mm -hmm. treating like black womanhood in the film. Yeah, so I was disappointed in that. And there's more, but I, but I wanna hear what you have to say, so I'm gonna stop talking. <laughs> uh, I'll be brief. I feel like you all have highlighted such important components structurally. Um, I think that my more major concerns were really just with the representation of Africa. I certainly understand um, the concerns about representations of African-Americans. In fact, it's very interesting. Uh, I recently facilitated a conversation between uh, black students at Boston College, uh, and apparently they have this, it's 21st century millennials, I'm like a different millennial generation. They have this enormous group chat of all the black students on campus. It's only 200 of them, so it's not that large. Um, and they ha apparently had an explosion on the group chat when they started talking about Black Panther. And it was like, well, you all, meaning African Americans, shouldn't be able to wear dashikis because that's appropriating our culture. And the response was, well, you all, African Americans, two African descended peoples from the continent, shouldn't be able to say the N-word because you weren't enslaved. And I thought, ooh, <laughs> you know, this is a lot to work with. Um, I actually find, you know, setting that aside for a moment, I think that there is, unfortunately, I think there remains a lot of distrust of the memory of what our African brothers and sisters did to us. Unfortunately, I know a lot of African Americans were like, why would I go to Africa? They sold me into slavery. Not understanding how much more complex that was. Yes, slavery existed in Africa. It was not racialized, it was not hereditary, and it was not chattel slavery. This is not to pretend that it did not have damaging effects, but nobody, I think, could have imagined 
the type of enslavement that was going to take place by the hands of Europeans when slavery looked so fundamentally different on the African continent. Um, and so I actually had more problems with the representations of Africa, the sort of amalgamation of like, oh, Africans from just Tuareg nations and from, again, the lip plates and the neck rings. Like, why is this our representation of Africans when this is like less than 1% of Africans who look like this? Why aren't they wearing more Nikes? Why aren't they wearing more, okay, maybe not Nikes, maybe the equivalent of Wakanda, equivalent of Nikes, whatever it is, right? I think that there are some ways in which I felt like African-American conceptions of what Africa looks like was really quite limited. Um, and very concerning to me. And I actually didn't think that Killmonger represented like all that is wrong with African-Americans. Ryan Coogler is African-American. I don't think he's gonna be doing that to himself. I actually thought that Killmonger was so tragic as a hero because, or like anti-hero, because of the trauma yeah. that he experienced yeah. as a child. Yeah. Um, and so those were some of my concerns. Yeah. And just real quickly, I mean, I think that, you know, what I would be interested in is you know, in terms of the script itself and how they execute it and who has the authority to say, this is, a, let's, let's do this, you know? Mm. And so, you know, it's the same thing with, when Manny Marable wrote the piece on Malcolm, mm. you know, it's like, well, who's publishing it, you know? So we have right. to deal with who has the power to say, yeah. let's go, and right. who just says, no, it's not gonna go, so. Right. And I'll say just very quickly, I mean, it's also important to remember, Black Panther was not a black story, right? right? It was written by right. two Jewish white dudes in the 1950s, right? So even the sort of realization of this film, exactly as you two have said, exists within this capitalist framework of like the industry and the empire that is Hollywood. I think this is why it's so important not to sort of band Wakanda, you know, though, yeah. We got our issues, but rather to think about how can we ensure that more black writers, more black playwrights, more black directors, producers, more costume designers, you know, are, are at the forefront so that various narratives can be told, so that yeah. more future imaginaries can be actualized and realized. And, and I, I wanted to say this, but it just went somewhere. The idea that the way that we're looking at the film, The Black Panthers, when we have Black Panthers and their families mm. uh, who have been devastated uh, by the US government, and even black families who are still incarcerated, mm -hmm. right, and that people don't even know about them. True. Right, and that how do we begin to link, you know, mm -hmm. that because that the whole idea of the black panthers was a co-optation, you know, of what was going to, you create another imaginary of, mm -hmm. you know, what's going on versus the fact that people, young people were saying, we're gonna throw down yes. to get our freedom, you know, yes. at any, by any means necessary. But if that is wiped out, you know, then the young people that you're talking about and the young people that we all deal with, they have no notion of that. Yeah, and they're fighting over who gets to wear the sheet. That's right. right? That's right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we've been talking about issues of uh, negative imagination, positive imagination, critiquing those, uh, representation. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on um, identity politics in the current uh, political time and presidential election and this issue between uh, like who's being represent the representation versus um, real platforms and policies, I don't know. If you could put these two together, um, sort of like real politic imagination with this like Black Panther critical analysis. So I think that, well, uh, let me, let me, I don't wanna speak too fast but that a teachable moment was missed mm. um, around the Michael Cohen hearing. And I think some people brought some issues out, but I think um, Congressman uh, Meadows really put his foot in his mouth. Um, but I think 
uh, the real issue is there'll be some changes, you know, in terms of what the policies are, but is that the change that we really need or is the change that we really want? And so we keep looking for the next charismatic person to be president or the next, you know, and that we're not looking internally in terms of local communities. You know, Chip, Tip O'Neill said that all politics is local. So where are the local people's assemblies developing, you know, platforms based on what it is they want and what they need? And so we'll go into 220, uh, uh, you know, with the same thing, and it's like, well, will it be a black woman this time, right? You know, or, uh, you know, no. will it be a black gay male person this time? No. You know, uh, you, you know uh, uh, will it be a white woman? Who, you know, versus is that what is the platform? Uh, how is that going to deal with the, the structural changes that need to happen? How is it going to adjust the inequalities and the gaps in our society, right? So I've been working the past 10 years with people, real radical people, who you know, wasn't trying to get paid to get honorariums <laughs> and meeting in different places and spending their time trying to put together a Freedom Manifesto to look at the question of black liberation and black freedom and how we need to build assemblies. But what happens is that you gotta go through all the different problems that we have to sort of get there. There's some examples, particularly maybe in uh, uh, Mississippi, Alabama, where they, you know, particularly with, um, you know, uh, uh, particularly after the election of Chokwe Lumumba, you know, of people trying to develop a new, new, uh, you know, having assemblies, trying to do a new economy, a new society, you know, trying to, de de you know, decolonize thinking and so forth. Those are the things that we have to look at, but we get caught up with all this other minutia, you know, versus, you know, what is it that we have to do? Because they are not the answer. They're not the answer. We need a new society. We need a new world. Whenever Elizabeth Warren and some of those other Democrats talk about, you know, let's go out to Venezuela, you know, uh-uh, right? You know, and who has the courage to speak on that? You, you understand? So, you know, I, I think that we have to begin to look at uh, how we go after uh, defining what freedom means for us and how do we organize for it. And how is, how is it going to be democratic, you know, uh, and inclusive, you know, and not, you know, just male-oriented, you know, that we have to look at the total, you know, mm -hmm. perspective on how we go for it, and that's a difficult struggle that we have to undertake. Um, I, I think the Freedom Project is a, so not this Freedom Project, I, right, like I believe in that Freedom Project. I think the, like the Liberation Project is um, sort of always facing failure because, so not that we can't be free, not that liberation is impossible, but it's always facing failure because we somehow think that our individual and, and like communal experiences of freedom are gonna happen through the liberation project, that like political liberation project. Yes. And it's not, yes. right? It's not gonna work like that. Now our individual and collective, like our community, us getting free in all the ways that that sort of speaks to our subjectivity, et cetera, et cetera, can contribute to the liberation project and vice versa. But one doesn't, it's, it's not gonna create the other. Um, so I was thinking about Kamala Harris, and um, <laughs> and the, so I was reading about like her brother. He's like, all right, what, you know, what's she talking about for real? And I was <laughs> <laughs> so there's this, you know, there's a section. I was like, all right, what's she what's she saying for the queers, right? What's the LGBT <laughs> folks got? 
And she argued, you know, uh, several years ago against these trans folks being able to have what mm. they need, right? Mm. And her response, as I'm sure you all know, was, I had to argue against it because of my job. And I was like, oh, you'll need to run for president. Because, <laughs> because your, your job is going to be to maintain American liberal democracy. And what American liberal democracy is going to do for sure is devastate us all. So, <laughs> you know, like those two things can't go together. And I, and I think the, the question of identity politics wrapped up in, in there is, but I do want blackness. I do want womanhood. I do. But not at the cost of... Right. Not at the cost of our freedom, right? Mm -hmm. And not certainly for somebody's job. And I know what the job is, you know, which also means that I'm not dependent on the presidency to liberate us. So. Right. You have a question back here? Um, I just wondered if you all could comment about the young lady, I think she was um, the um, apparent heirs. Uh, sister and her technology. You know, I, I can't remember exactly. I didn't even understand it. There was some machine she kept going to. Are you talking about in Black, Black Panther? Panther? Right. Um, oh, Princess Shuri? Right. The, the little tech sister? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm wondering if you see some symbolism in that, um, dealing with, you know, since, you know, we have um, kind of like the technology. Mm, your conversation earlier was good on that. Oh, yeah. Um, Yes? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I agree with uh, Lupita Nyong'o, um, Lupita, if I may be on a first name basis with her, uh, when she states that it's a really important visual for young black girls to see other black women as bosses, quite honestly, in, you know, yes, a world that is increasingly becoming sort of technocratic. Um, I um, personally feel like we need to be very cautious about the ways that we can get sucked into the sort of digital vortex of isolationism. Um, there are all these studies right now, you know, indicating that, you know, while people are more digitally connected than ever, many people, and particularly in the West, are feeling more isolated than ever, are feeling less heard because they've become obsessed with, you know, more likes and more tweets and more retweets and da 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 da, -da right? And basing our sense of value and worth and how many, you know, likes you get is, I think, quite dangerous. Um, and this sort of endless scrolling, I think, is equally concerning in terms of being unable to be present to be still, to be quiet, uh, to be uncomfortable in an awkward moment and to own that and to sort of work with that as opposed to constantly moving to our phones. Um, but that said, I think that that's what religion can offer us. And I think that honestly, that's what these African and African diasporic religions can offer us. Comfort with discomfort, mm -hmm. the ability to take a moment and be still and be quiet. Um, and, you know, even recognizing that, I, do st I still think that it's really important to see these types of representations of black womanhood because it's one of many, right? If that were the only black one in the movie, I'd be very upset, right? But because there's also a love interest who's not primarily a love interest, who also has her own sort of agenda and objectives, though it could be more full, because there's a mother figure, because there's also a warrior, I'm feeling more pleased. This is one of the first films that we've seen that has at least four 
archetypes that aren't Jezebel, Mammy, Sapphire, and Welfare Queen, right? And so I think expanding our representations of black womanhood can only help to serve us, even if we remain uh, critical of the ways that technology can kind of envelop us and silence us. And I, I think the question is also not getting caught up on what they're showing as technology, but also begin to deal with spiritual technology mm. and women representation in that process. Mm. You know, for example, in the Yoruba tradition, when you go to Cuba, is that it's usually very, you know, male-oriented in terms of when you look at those who become, you know, could, who, could, who could deal with Ifa, for example. You know, whereas in Nigeria, you have Yanifas, which is also a new phenomenon. It exists, but it's becoming more prolific, right? But the real shift is in right in the diaspora, where you're getting more women who become Yanifas, who can do the very same thing that men can do, right? And so, and so that is a very important piece because there is a spiritual technologist involved that can help people deal with, you know, the kind of transformation they need to, to deal with, you know, uh, and so forth. So it's how we begin to look at what technology actually is. So. Well, thank you. Thank you.